everyone welcome to a special crossover edition of now it's dark and movies about and today i'm joined by a special guest jim bacho he is the co-host of the podcast movies about with his wife cc kim he's also a writer and academic living in seoul the movies about podcast is available on youtube and he's just launched a new youtube channel called creative philosophy Today we're going to be talking about the 95th edition of the Oscars, the Academy Awards, which are just right around the corner. But before we get into that, I just kind of wanted to talk to you about your YouTube channel, your podcast. Uh, what sort of things do you guys talk about on Movies About? Well, it started as Movies About Music, and then we decided to broaden it because we're both musicians and we both love movies. And that was our season one, and then we decided we needed to expand it. So my wife, Cece, suggested we just call it Movies About. And we've been doing movies about places, movies about music, movies about holidays. So it kind of is more open-ended now, and we're in our second season of the podcast. Cece is in Australia right now, so uh, I asked Tim to guest on Movies About in her stead. And for this Oscar special, the 95th, edition of the Academy Awards. Yeah, and I'm, I'm very happy to be joining you, and I'm happy that you could join us as well. You recently did a podcast on TAR for Movies About, which I guess would be Movies About Movies, or Movies About Music. This is a Movies About Music. Yeah, and I really enjoy that episode because I, I feel like what you enjoyed about TAR is exactly what I enjoyed about TAR too, mm. which is its kind of ambiguity, its lack of... of you know, a clear hero or villain. It's it's bravery and courage in terms of just kind of depicting a, a set of social conditions that I think we're all going through and kind of struggling to interpret. Mm -hmm. uh, and we'll be getting into Tar a little bit later as, as part of the Best Picture nominee discussions. But I just wanted to mention that as well. And uh, about your YouTube channel, that just launched, and that's kind of more based on philosophy, but you also talk about film as well. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, the creative philosophy channel that I just started is bringing together philosophical concepts and creative arts or creative expression. It could include politics. But it's right now it's a series of essays that I've, that I've been working on. I have a couple of videos now on Terrence Malick. I'm gonna. I'm working on one on AI right now, and its philosophical and creative implications for people who are in the creative arts. And then I also want to do some uh, hosting of interviews and things like that. So it's just getting started, really. Excellent, excellent. And for longtime listeners, I guess of now it's dark. You've actually been a guest on our podcast before. Yeah, we, we were talked talking about, about, the, about shining. the shining. Yeah, that was that was really fun. And I should say that I, I listened to your podcast that you did. You did a, an episode on everything, everywhere, all at once, and you had a great discussion about the film. It was a very deep discussion on that film, and I, I really appreciate it. And you got me thinking about that movie in some different ways. So that was that was a really good conversation you had. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was... So I guess also for longtime listeners of our show, uh, Mike 
uh, and I originally started this this podcast together. Since Mike has moved back to the States, and recently he moved to England to be with his, his family, his wife and child, I've kind of continued the podcast uh, while he's kind of on hi- hiatus with a series of guests. And so it's interesting each time, each episode, to be talking to someone new with some mm. new insights. You know, for example, on the Everything Everywhere All at Once podcast, uh, my friend and guest, Eric Pleasy, was a big fan of the film. I wasn't so much of a fan of the film, and I think I've probably become less of a fan of the film as time mm. has gone on. But I like the fact that, you know, I can get some insight from someone who has a, a very different perspective from me. And that was really cool. That's something I hope to do more of. And we may even do some of that today in today's episode. Yeah, great. Well, when we are here today to talk about the 95th Oscars, it's just around the corner. Uh, This year's Oscar ceremony comes on the heels of two record low ceremonies in 2021 and 2022. And lots of hand wringing and angst in the media and the commentary over why the Oscars ceremonies are, are not as well watched and popular as they were before. And in just, just like in previous years, the nominations for this year's Oscars has generated a lot of controversy as well as some, some real surprises as well. Yeah, and just just to know, there's going to be some spoilers ahead. Um, we're gonna we're gonna try to resist spoiling too much, but it's going to come out. And also, I want to note that we're going to be focusing mostly on the best picture nominations as well as some of the other categories that piqued our interest. But we're not going to do a comprehensive overview of the nominations. Yeah, exactly. And we'll also discuss some films that we thought were maybe unfairly snubbed by the Oscars as well as offering up some films that we really enjoyed from from 2022. I always try to make like a top 10 list for each year. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. Yeah. Yeah, Uh, because it's often very, very different from what the Oscars chooses to kind of recognize. I know like the film critic, for example, Mark Kermode, always has, what does he call them, like the Kermode Awards? Or I think he has a more clever name than that, but... For example, in the year that uh, There Will Be Blood was nominated, he was just like horrified, as I think a lot of people were, that Johnny Greenwood's score was disqualified uh, on a on a quali- you know kind of a technical technicality, or uh, it, it wasn't able to be nominated uh, for right. best original score. And so I feel like that's where podcasts like this are are kind of important, right? To kind mm-hmm. of recognize and acknowledge uh, a lot of the Academy's oversights, and there are many. Yeah, I agree. So before we get into the nominees and specifically the Best Picture nominees, I thought it'd be good to kind of zoom out a bit and take an overview of the Academy Awards as they stand in the year 2023, because I think it's fair to say that the last eight years or so have been some of the most tumultuous and transformative in the entire history of the Academy. If we think back even to 2015, we see the emergence of Oscar So White. Me Too in 2017 also emerged. And both of these kind of movements changed how we talk about films. They really kind of made race and gender an essential part of how films are discussed, uh, both in the legacy media and on social media. And it's also worth noting, too, that in the wake of these movements, and even before these movements came to light, the Oscars, uh, the Academy, was going about kind of diversifying and expanding its membership. And if we look at the numbers, I think in 2010, 
it was around 6,000 people in the 90s and, and 2000s and into the early 2010s. The membership was capped at around 6,000 people. It's now grown to over 9,000. So it has expanded a lot. It's also greatly diversified. And they actually had diversity goals they wanted to meet in 2020, which they did. And this has kind of really shifted the voting composition of the Academy and really kind of has changed which sort of films are nominated and which sort of films win. It's also become much more internationalized. And this is something that hasn't really been discussed as much as it should be, I think, because it is very important. It's one reason, for example, why Parasite did so well at the 2020 Oscars. Mm -hmm. And I was reading a, an interesting interview on Vox with the uh, statistician Walt Hickley, who kind of was making the point that this internationalization, this globalization, may reflect kind of a soft power ambition on the part of the academy to globalize the institution so that it can maintain its legitimacy as other international markets challenge Hollywood's uh, hegemony over the kind of awards industry, the movie awards industry. And looking ahead to next year, the Academy has also announced plans to add diversity requirements for films to be eligible to be nominated for Best Picture. So that's going to be a big part of the conversation for next year. But just kind of looking back at some of these trends, these movements, these changes, do you think the Academy's response to these kind of demands for change were, were good ones? For my part, I think it is good to, in one sense, to add diversity. I think diversity is good in filmmaking. I'm concerned a bit that it's, that it is more like you say, a, a soft power issue that seems a bit corporate, uh, you know, in terms of the fear being that things are going to become kind of too vast and spread out. I think we see some of this in the in the nominations that there are for Best Picture right now. Now we've got ten nominations, right? So it's already quite yeah. a quite a huge field, and it's trying to encompass a lot of different areas. When really, to me, the Academy Awards are very much still a Hollywood power self congratulatory thing. I was really interested in in the research you were doing there that it expanded from six thousand to nine thousand over the course of 10 years, I think. Do you know if that yes. expansion has been international or has it been more based on demographics within the United States? It's been mostly international. The Academy, I, I believe, noted that and almost kind of bragged uh, about the fact that I think one year the expansion, it was 45 or 49% international. Mm. And as a result, this has kind of taken away relative voting power from certain departments, for example, mm. like writing, sound, acting. These branches of the academy now have less power as other branches have kind of gained in power. Uh, I believe short films, visual effects. Uh, there's something called voters at large, I think, mm. which includes a, a kind of uh, various, various kind of departments within filmmaking and and even things like agents and stuff like that. But a lot of these departments have been internationalized, and this is a relatively under-discussed kind of mm -hmm. aspect of, of how the Oscars have developed, because a lot of times their diversification efforts are kind of discussed more in terms of like 
you know, more Asian American actors, uh, mm -hmm. more African American actors being added or, or, you know, cast and crew and stuff like that, rather than, you know, a lot of these diversity requirements being met by adding more international members. Okay. So what do you see as the shifts that are going on here? Well, I agree with you that it's it's taking kind of a corporate turn. I mean, I, I believe it's a complex issue. Uh, I agree that more diversity is good, but the kind of diversity that we're talking about is, is I think, also limited, right? Mm -hmm. uh, for example, economics is not really a part of this discussion, mm. which is kind of insane if you think about how much money drives Hollywood. Money is, is not really part of the conversation that, you know, people from everything from like people from poor economic backgrounds who have less access to funding are not part of this conversation in terms of making the Oscars, I guess, more accessible in some ways or more open. Uh, and the a lot of the structures the power structures that remain from before in terms of, you know, the outside influence that studios have in terms of influencing who gets nominated or even just the rules that are kind of set up to make it almost impossible for people who don't have major studio support and funded behind them to be nominated or recognized. All of these power structures have remained intact while at the same time, you know, the Oscars have opened up in terms of you know, mostly racial and gender categories. So I think there's a lot left to be desired in terms of, you know, the Oscars truly diversifying mm -hmm. uh, and including things like economics. But also, I think a lot of the discussion over films uh, has has really been driven by social media. I mean, it's I, I don't think you can overstate how important it is that the two movements that really altered the Oscars and led to a lot of social pressure for the Oscars to change both came from social media, right? Mm -hmm. The hashtag yes. Me Too, hashtag Oscars So White. Mm -hmm. And this ties into something that I actually talked about on a previous episode that I, I did, Mike and I did, with a guest, uh, John W. Gunnison. We did a two-part series called The End of the Movies, Mm -hmm. And we looked at a, an op-ed by an opinion writer named Ross Douthat at the New York Times, who basically made the point that social media has di displaced cinema as the main popular art form in America. And if that is the case, and, you know, we get into a lot of details about why we kind of agree with that point then I don't think it can simply be said that social media was the vessel for these kind of demands for the Oscars to change and be more representative and more diverse. But rather, I think the power of these movements signaled the power of the medium itself and kind of the dominant values of social media over the medium of cinema. It's, it's I think, the case that cinema itself as a medium is being displaced. And whatever you may think about the impact of social media and you know, it's, it's kind of dominant values. I think there's no doubt if you look at the, you know, some of the nominees this year, uh, and especially if you look at the, the discussions around film, that, you know, the, the dominant values of social media have displaced what we might call cinematic values. Things like, 
and I'm talking about social media now, identity, talking about, you know, psychology and character in terms of trauma, things like meme ability, fandoms, and particularly toxic fandoms. These are really driving a lot of the film discourse. And even I think it has impacted how films are being made today. Mm -hmm. And just to kind of wrap up that point, I mean, some people might be wondering, all right, what do you mean by cinematic values? You know, what do you mean by cinema? And I, I will simply defer to uh, a little known director named Marty Scorsese on this, who mm-hmm. wrote this famous op-ed for the New York Times when he was kind of criticizing Marvel movies. And he made the case that like cinema and cinematic values are things like, quote, aesthetic, emotional, and spiritual revelation, complex mm-hmm. characters, confronting the unexpected on screen, an element of risk. These are all things that he mentions are, to him, cinema and cinematic values. And I think it would be hard to argue that these values are in the process of being displaced by kind of the sort of values we see on social media. And, and we may be witnessing kind of a, a, a shift in the, you know, the medium itself when social media kind of comes to dominate cinema as the main popular art form. But I've kind of laid out a lot of stuff here. So I'm just kind of wondering what, what you think of all that. No, that's good. I think that's a good way of, of framing where we're at right now. I don't know that I'm on board for the diagnosis that social media is replacing cinema. I think that the two can stand alone, except that, of course, as you say, they are I don't want to say infecting each other, but they are influencing each other. <laughs> but I also think that these things kind of happen in waves and cycles and trends. To me, I think there's always going to be a hunger for the, you know, a shared space of storytelling. You know, I'm thinking of Walter Murch talking about how cinema is dreamlike. And when you go into the theater, everybody's sharing the same dream experience. And and I do think that that's an element that people really, you know, feel strongly. So I think cinema will transform, but I also think that we're going to have, it's going to take some time to see what is, what are trends and what kind of forms that cinema will, will take. You know, of course it has a long history of surviving, you know, with the threats of TV and the threats of the internet. And we're just going right. to have to see what happens there. But I think it's helpful to to make a distinction of, I think, two things at work. And one is the way we discuss films as a means of discussing changes in cultural norms and advancements and equality and important social issues. And then the second thing is the way these changes have become integrated into film narratives. So I think that they're mm. different processes. So the former, I would say, is the realm of media and criticism, which you know is something I think there's a lot of people studying critical theory, cultural theory, film theory. I think this is a very popular thing in, in master's programs and even undergraduate programs. And I think that people go out and they graduate from school and they you know graduate from college and they get jobs producing content. There's so much content now and it generates income for these different publications in terms of advertising and clicks and things like that and and that to me ties in with the social media element because the social media feeds off of that right but then the, the second thing is film development which which generates its income at least ideally from its product and you know this was 
something that happened with the distinction of cinema and TV, you know, before the internet came along, you know, that TV was a medium of advertising and with content and film was a, a medium of content with an element of advertising, you know, but now mm -hmm. these things have kind of gotten blended together. But I do think that films, movies still do stand on their own, but that both create their own sets of problems. And one of the things that I'm really concerned about is how things are, how, how the narratives of film are changing. Mm. So there's, there's kind of two sets of concerns and, and film criticism is so massive right now. Media criticism, I guess I would agree in the sense that media criticism feels even more popular than what it criticizes. Um, so that would be kind of a, a you know, a way of framing uh, and perhaps another way of what's going on here. Yeah. And to your point about cinema kind of continuing to exist independently of social media, I think you're definitely right. My concern is that on the one hand, a lot of the films that we would talk about as being exemplary films in terms of cinema really haven't done very well commercially. I mean, in fact, yeah. they've done very poorly. You can look this at Tar, you can look at yeah. The Fablemans, you can look mm -hmm. at Babylon even, something that you would expect would have more popular appeal. Uh, the Northman did uh, pretty okay, I think, at the box office, but even that was a, considered kind of a disappointment and, and almost a bomb. And mm -hmm. if you look at the performance of these films, it does kind of, it's cause for concern, I think, in terms of the commercial viability of cinema. And I think if you look at the success of, you know, the continuing success of Marvel movies, but also movies like Top Gun, Everything Everywhere mm -hmm. All at Once, movies that are more spectacle driven. And in the case of Everything Everywhere All at Once, and I think you could say a lot of Marvel movies, much more designed for kind of a social media obsessed audience. Mm -hmm. that that is worrying. I mean, one part of this conversation that makes this whole thing kind of hard to talk about with any degree of certainty is streaming mm -hmm. because it's a very opaque industry. We don't have a lot of access to numbers. Uh, a lot of these streaming companies kind of keep their numbers secret and we don't really know True. how much money is made, how these movies perform. So it may be the case that in the future going forward, movies like Tar will, or The Fablemans will do kind of poorly in theaters mm -hmm. and then make their budget back and more on streaming platforms and, and may somehow find uh, a second life there. But again, without seeing numbers, we don't really know. We can't really mm -hmm. say that with any degree of certainty. I think to your second point about how social media, or rather how film criticism has, has expanded and become this thing that's, that's almost bigger than the films themselves. I think that only speaks to, again, the impact of social media and just the fact that there is this kind of symbiotic relationship and that I think social media perhaps found a much better bedfellow in, in film criticism and that in turn had kind of downstream effects on what films were funded, what films became popular. Mm -hmm. I mean, again, you know, if you look at everything everywhere all at once, that, that's just dominated social media. Mm -hmm. And I'll just finish off with this, you know, 
kind of a slight tangent, but I think it's very much related. Something I'd like to look more into, which is how if you look at A24, for example, as this kind of like very hot production company mm-hmm. and studio, one of the keys to their success, I think, is how they've mastered social media mm-hmm. and in a way that every other studio, I think, is very envious of. Uh, they are very successful at kind of using social media and perhaps choosing the sorts of films that are, you know, that play well on social media, that they've been able to really attract audiences to their film. I don't necessarily think this is a good thing going forward, but it is to their credit. They've they found an audience for everything everywhere all at once, where like, for example, uh, was Fox Searchlight couldn't do the same for Babylon or something mm-hmm. like that. So it's that's another part of the conversation, I think. Yeah, so I don't think we're in in disagreement. So what you were what you were critiquing is my was my second point was that I do think that social media is, you know, having an effect on the narratives and having the, an effect on the way that cinema is being done. So I agree with you there. You know, so so my first point was basically kind of how social media is affecting culture at large. My second point was, yeah, about how it's affecting films. And obviously there's positive things going on and there's there's some not so positive things going on. Right. But we, you know, we see this playing out in in terms of the narratives in some of these films that we that we have in this group of, of nominees. We see Me Too and feminism grappling with these tensions. I saw at least five films across the nominations, not just Best Picture, but the nominations that I saw with very strong, compelling women as as both actors and their characters. Movies like Tar, Women Talking, Everything Everywhere All at Once, Fablemans, and even Banshees, you know, have, have very good, compelling, rich women as these characters and in these roles. So I think that's absolutely a good positive trend. But you know, there's also there's something subtle that if if you don't mind indulging me that I wanted to talk about that I think is tangential to this. And absolutely, it's a trend I noticed that films seem to be now avoiding the horror of the crime and dealing instead with the outcome. Hmm. So if you look. If you look at a film like Tar, it's about it's not about the deed. And we kind of talked about this, me and Cece, in our podcast we did about Tar. It's not about the deed of what happened. We never know what happens. It's about the punishment and mm. the takedown of a sociopathic abuser. I mean, we assume that what happened, but there's no narrative unfolding of the crime playing out. And then you look mm-hmm. at a film like Women Talking... It's got these kind of Terrence Malick style flashes to the aftermath of the crimes, you know, a lot of blood uh, on the walls and and blood on the sheets and things like this. But we don't see the acts played out. It's not that I want that, Mm. but it, it, it is a change. It's almost as if we're done depicting the actual deed and we just expect that it happened. So I think this is what I mean by it's an odd reflection of social media. Just take our word for it that this happened. Hmm. We're not going to show the horror of the crime. And then even in a movie like After Sun, I don't know if you saw After Sun. I did, yeah. Yeah, it was nominated for Best Actor. We never know what his issue was. We never learn it, and it seems like it doesn't matter. I'm not appealing for these 
violent incidents necessarily as we saw like in the 1970s and 1980s. But it does seem to be that the trend is going now more towards a, an explanation and a litigation of what happened. And I think this mm. is what I mean by how social media is having an effect on narratives. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. I do. I, I, I think you're definitely right. And I think it probably reflects kind of a general turn towards risk aversion yeah. in cinema. I think There so. was a, a very good article written... It was it was about Sundance, but it was very much about kind of the risk aversion that's taken hold of of Hollywood and even kind of indie filmmaking. It was written mm -hmm. by, I believe, Eric Cohen at IndieWire. He kind of made the case that there there did seem to be this risk aversion, but that the future was kind of looking a little bit there we may be kind of turning a corner on that. But I would say what you've highlighted here is perhaps two responses to this trend where it is, it's just more difficult to kind of depict the incident, you know, whether it be a violent incident or an abusive incident or whatever it is, without including a sort of moralizing gaze mm. attached to it, because mm -hmm. there is this kind of expectation that it, it must be condemned mm -hmm. and prosecuted within the film itself right. to present kind of a... Uh, you know, condemnation and to kind of have uh, a justice served within the film itself, that filmmakers have found strategies around this. Now, I think in the case of, of women talking, one strategy is just to kind of say it happens. You know, yeah. we don't need to talk about it, take our word for it sort of thing. I think Sarah pa Pauly wisely chose a social environment in which there's very little reason to doubt that it happened. Yeah, and, there's no doubt that it happened, but we don't. Right, see, and I, but we don't see it play out. Yeah, even the characters themselves acknowledge, uh, you know, while they they have this this long discussion that well, you know, this you saw one guy, but the other guys that he identified as as also being perpetrators, maybe they're innocent. You know, like there there is this element of doubt introduced, mm -hmm. but for the most part, it is kind of like assumed in the film that these happened. I think with, say, Tar or After Sun, you have a very different strategy, which is to use the ambiguity of the inciting event as part of the kind of texture of the film itself. You know, oh, with, with like Tar, yeah. it, it's very much part of, I think, what the film is trying to do mm -hmm. to say there is perhaps an inherent ambiguity not only to events and incidents, but people. And how do mm -hmm. we deal with this? Mm. With After Sun, it's, it's perhaps more pointing to the emotional ambiguity and complexity mm -hmm. of, I, I remember Charlotte Wells in an interview talking about how, you know, this is very much based on, on her, her real life experiences and her, her father. And I believe she said one of the main inspirations for her film was looking back at pictures of her father uh, when they were on vacation and realizing how young he was and how how much she identified now with what he must have been at that time and realizing that the the ambiguity, the uncertainty that she's feeling now is something he probably must have felt, but yet that wasn't apparent to her when she was a child. Mm -hmm. And so that's, I think, an effective strategy in mm -hmm. the case of Tar and After Sun and 
perhaps even in women talking, though she, you know, it, it's down to her, her very specific choice of a social environment. I think in general, if we take a look at an example like, I don't know, Promising Young Woman or something like that, I find that's an example where, you know, they avoid showing some of the incidents more to kind of just say, take our word for it. Like there, there's no ambiguity involved. It's, they are very much kind of trying to say like, it's more about how you deal with it. Cause what happened is just kind of this assumed thing. Mm -hmm. And you know, the film has its own way of dealing with that. I don't think it's particularly effective. Or if you look at something like even Ridley Scott's The Last Duel, which mm. tried and absolutely failed to implement this Rashomon type uh, conceit where you would see this, you know, sexual assaults take place from different points of view. And yet all the points of view show exactly the same thing because you can't, I mean, it, it's getting into very you know, tricky waters if you try to suggest basically a he said, she said mm -hmm. in the context of today's Hollywood, you mm -hmm. know, that would make the film very rife for, for criticism. And, you know, I think the tendency towards risk aversion probably led the filmmakers to decide not to go down that path. Right. So that's kind of my long winded response to what you no, just said. That's, I, I really appreciate that. And I think what we're finding because of this is that cinema is really more than ever trying to exist at this discursive level. And I don't mean that mm. in the, in the, textual analysis of film meaning of the word discursive i mean that things are being discussed um, not that we're discussing the film but that things are in the film are being discussed because this is the way things are being played out in our lives we're, we're seeing a lot of explanation we're seeing a lot of communication about things but there's no plot of the event the the event is not plotted um, mm. or rather the the plot becomes the aftermath you know the inciting incident one of the tenets of aristotelian poetics you know that there's an there's an inciting incident that turns you know the fortunes of everybody it's it's almost like that rather than showing it which is what tragedy of old would do and i think cinema of the 70s and 80s would do that it's just a given that this most important element of tragedy in the classic sense is now just a given. And I find that hmm. really interesting. Indeed, and, indeed. And perhaps a problem. <laughs> it certainly can be. I, I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's interesting to view that as a problem that films are now responding to in, in better or worse ways. You mm -hmm. know, and I, I certainly agree that you're right. I, I think perhaps another aspect of, of social media has kind of been, you know, and this is kind of a thorny issue itself to talk about, but just... The way that race and gender have entered the conversation have sometimes been very toxic, I think. And it's, it's almost become kind of a staple of award season and film commentary today that, you know, inevitably there, there's kind of a toxic discussion that takes center stage in a way that I don't think is good, I think, for, for film, but really just for society at large. I mean, if we take a look, for example, at uh, the uh, Andrew Riseborough nomination for Best Actor, mm, right. that's kind of a, a very good example of that. So if you don't know, Riseborough is, is a very respected actor. Uh, she was in films like Mandy, 
Bre- Brendan Cronenberg's Possessor. She was in Nocturnal Animals by Tom Ford. She was in a lot of films. She's very respected in the industry. She is kind of known for being a very fearless actor, you know, because especially if you look at at Mandy and Possessor, these are films that are very irreverent and I guess pushing some buttons in certain ways and 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 controversial in their in their own right. And and she tackles these sorts of roles in a kind of fearless way, which I admire. She yeah. kind of did it again this year in, in the film she was nominated for to Leslie. So mm-hmm. if you don't know the story behind kind of how this film and her performance kind of became part of the conversation, she acted in this film called To Leslie, which was directed by this kind of veteran TV guy named Michael Morris. It was a very, very low budget film. It made no money at the box office. And the wife of the director, uh, an actress named Mary McCormick, who's been in a lot of films in her own right, she basically mounted this, by Hollywood standards, a grassroots campaign for Riseboro to be nominated. They didn't have a lot of money. They didn't have really a lot of uh, resources, you know, certainly not the resources you would get at a big studio. And, you know, kind of as we mentioned before, the power structures of Oscar campaigns I mean, it costs around $2,000 to have an Academy, the Academy send an email to its members just kind of mentioning your film for your consideration. You know, it, it costs $20,000 to have your film screen on the Academy website. And there are all these kind of official channels by which you're supposed to mount Oscar campaigns, which are, which are very expensive and require you to kind of play into the, the existing power structure in Hollywood. And to everyone's surprise, this kind of grassroots campaign succeeded. She was nominated for for Best Actress this year. Where the controversy came in is that uh, Viola Davis and Danielle Deadweiler were not nominated. And so there's been this kind of conversation ever since where it's like, okay, so this, this white actress was nominated instead of two black actresses. And it's... I mean, people have had this conversation in intelligent ways and in very kind of toxic ways. And it's just kind of, it's sad, saddens me, I guess, to see, you know, this sort of fighting and these sorts of issues discussed as this kind of like, I don't know, in this very toxic way. It's also kind of telling to me that, for example, Another controversy about, you know, someone kind of putting their finger on the scale basically flew by without notice. The president of the Academy, Janet Yang, she sent, she posted a tweet in support of everything ever at once. She's friends with Michelle Yeoh. She eventually deleted the tweets because that's just, if not against the written rules of the Mm -hmm. Oscars, and it may be certainly a violation of etiquette. Mm -hmm. And yet this kind of flew under everyone's radar, just was not part of the conversation. Mm, And so I just don't like to see award shows kind of descend into this sorts of this sort of discourse. I'm hoping that there's a way to kind of continue to address race, race and gender in the Academy and in film discussions without things becoming so toxic. And maybe Mm, that's just naive. Uh, but I don't know. That's that's a concern of mine for sure. I think it's also worth noting that 
the grassroots effort to get her nominated was done by quite a few white women uh, in Hollywood. It seemed like right. it had the backing of the of the white women establishment of Hollywood, which I think should also be mentioned in that. I didn't hear about the Michelle Yeoh story, so that's that's very interesting. Yeah, but yeah, it almost feels like you know, kind of the back the back end, you know, the 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 back door. I don't know what you want to back, whatever. Um, the backstage kind of drama kind of got revealed in a strange way in this. And I think we're going to see more and more and more of this. It just seems to be escalating and escalating. And I think to the detriment of, of the awards. And I think that what you're going to find is people are just going to start to become turned off to this. If they weren't already. I mean, this yes. is a, a really good example of, hey, we're not talking about cinematography. We're not even talking about acting performances. I don't know anyone who's really yeah. seen the film who couldn't say that Riseborough gave a great performance into Leslie. And listen, uh, you know, props to Viola Davis and, and Danielle Deadweiler. I mean, this is the way the Academy's, the Academy Awards work. I think part of what's missing in this conversation is just how many great performances, how many great actors and directors have been totally ignored mm. by the Academy. Stanley Kubrick never won a Best Director Oscar. Neither did Alfred Hitchcock. Neither did John mm -hmm. Luke Godard. Neither did Kurosawa. Mm -hmm. David Lynch hasn't won one. You mm -hmm. know, and you can look at actors too. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know, uh, Donald Sutherland, Danny Glover. Uh, you can go down a list of just people. Uh, Joseph Cotton never got an award. Ed mm -hmm, Edward mm -hmm, right. G. Robinson never got an award. Marilyn Monroe didn't. I mean, there's just an endless list of people who've been snubbed by the Oscars. And when social media drives the conversation, you have a lot of people who, A, probably are not as familiar with the history of the Oscars doing this, weighing in in the conversation. But B, the way they're talking about it ultimately detracts from discussions about appreciation of cinema, mm -hmm. you know, because mm -hmm. I'd love to be talking about what I love about performances or cinematography or what have you, you know, more than these sorts of conversations, which are just, for me, I don't even want to really participate in it. I think that maybe perhaps we've taken the idea of cinema in, in maybe a weird angle. You know, it, I think it's pretty well recognized that cinema is a reflection of society. And this is, again, what, I'm, what I mentioned before, seems to be taking it to the discursive level rather than the narrative level. It seems to be that we're kind of looking at this element of cinema as a reflection of society as, you know, or cinema as political, which it is, mm -hmm. but we're not seeing cinema doing politics. We're doing cinema and politicizing its surfaces and its um, mechanisms. And mm. these are important issues, I think, the is issues of labor and issues of all aspects of how a film is made, you know, at every level. But yeah, I think the older way of thinking of it, and I think it's still a valid way of thinking about it. Maybe I'm a dinosaur at this point, but I think <laughs> that the narrative should be what pushes the political and the, and the idea, you know, this is a 2000 year old idea that what we find value in in the tragedy is the tragedy. Right. And that the tragedy right. tells us something about the human condition. 
But now it seems like there's we're so meta now that it's the mm. meta issues that rise to the top rather than the unfolding of, of an empathetic bond with what's happening in the narrative. Mm. So if you don't mind, I, maybe we could pull this back towards the narrative side of what's happening. This has its own gatekeeper element. Right. In terms of what films get made and what don't get made, you know, and, and you're talking about who gets nominated, who, who doesn't get nominated. Or there's all of these gatekeepers at play in, in these decisions. And I'll just say it. My concern is that film narratives are getting washed out by the mm. demands of correctness. And we can see it in films becoming more predictable. Like, right. I'll, I'll give Glass Onion as an example. I had all kinds of right. problems with that movie. I thought it was entertaining. Um, it had some real problems with its narrative development. But I knew from the very beginning who was going to be the good guy in the end. Um, because the demographic right. had to win the narrative game. And I think that Glass Onion, mm. an ensemble film, you know, had to play out this way. And so you can almost yeah. predict by the demographics how it's going to play out. Another example, I don't know if you saw the Irish film The Wonder with Florence Pugh. I did not. No. But I'm I'm aware of it, but I haven't seen it. Yeah, I really did not like this movie. <laughs> Florence Pugh, she gave a stellar performance. Let me just say that, but her character is a woman who already knows everything. She doesn't change at all through the course of the film, and in the end she's right. And to me this right. is just poor filmmaking. It it there's no yeah. arc of of self-doubt and you know taking stock uh, there's no reversal there's no there's a challenge obviously that she has to face but she's just steadfast and she's exactly the same in the beginning as she is at the end and so you know you were talking about risks and i'm right on board with you i feel like cinema has lost its boldness of antagonizing and taking a mm. risk and part of what cinema should do to be political is to antagonize its viewers. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, it, there, if there is antagonizing going on, it, it seems to be very talky and very expository and kind of, you know, and again, women talking, which I think is a, is a, is a, is a very good film, and we can talk about that later. But that's an example of, mm -hmm. you know, again, the expository way of playing something out. But it's all very at the level of conversation. So I think cinema has always been about progressive social change, but this wave seems to be too obvious to hold any tension. And I feel like mm. the studios are now built to avoid bad press. You know, of course, studios yeah. are corporations with shareholders and they have ancillary business concerns. You know, they're all kind of conglomerates, I think, at this point, or they're owned by somebody else who has some pull. So there's reluctance to be dangerous. But I think what I'm saying is I'd really like to see a return of cinema's sense of risk and danger. And I haven't seen any indication of that yet. Yeah. And I think there are films which kind of represent certain sorts of experiences or, or people that are have been underrepresented for a long time, which do this very well. And I'll mention two mm -hmm. off the top of my head. I think the work of Barry Jenkins, for example, particularly mm -hmm. if Beale Street could talk. Great movie. Manages to have this sense of, of revelation and takes risks aesthetically that I feel like, you know, the characters maintain their ambiguity and richness. And in fact, the issues that he's representing and highlight are even more powerful because of this. 
where a film like you mentioned, Glass Onion, or The Wonder, even though I haven't seen it, but the way you're describing it makes it sound like this, kind of give you a representation of politics rather than actually an articulation or expression of politics. I think revelatory art, cinema, is an actualization of politics. And the, the film itself, in its risk-taking, in its revelations, manages to do this. Whereas I think Glass Onion is just saying, well, we all agree that this should happen. So I'm just going to represent that, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, another film I'd probably mention too is uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, which I, I felt was full of revelation. And, you know, you really see this kind of social environment and this this moment of of great political and social change as this sort of rich, ambiguous, you know, sort of tragedy in a way. And it, it does make the politics much more powerful. Mm, absolutely. So in a weird way, by by doing things in a cinematic way, despite I think what the kind of social media critics might say, it makes the politics more powerful, not less. Yeah. yeah. And that's I think what we're both advocating here in a way. Mm-hmm. I, I think too this ties into the globalization of the academy because I think one of the things that has been lost in some of the changes that the Academy is making, its expansion, connect with other issues around globalization. And, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting to look back at the time that Oscar So White and Me Too were really gaining traction in America, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump were traveling around America talking about how much globalization has screwed everyone over. You know, Brexit was happening in England. And you can look at other movements around the world. There's almost this parallel universe that Hollywood exists in where globalization has always been this good thing. <laughs> and, you know, there's, no, there's nothing bad that ever happened with it. And again, it's a complicated issue. I think bringing and and bringing in more international filmmakers and talents as well as recognizing the achievements of films from around the world is a great thing on the other hand i think there's reason to be concerned on a few different levels we've already mentioned how economics are not part of the new rules and the new kind of uh programs that the oscars are, are making to be more inclusive it's also worth wondering if some of the negative impacts of globalization, things like, you know, the loss of manufacturing capacity, jobs being shipped overseas, the kind of hollowing out of America and indeed many economies on a material level doesn't find parallels in filmmaking. If there isn't kind of a cultural hollowing out as Hollywood pursues more franchise films that are more meant for international audiences mm. rather than domestic audiences. If domestic stories and domestic filmmakers who are working in the indie level with very little money, films like To Leslie, are disempowered, mm-hmm. have less funding. If we might be risking, you know, the kind of domestic indie film industries in these various countries... And I think that's just not part of the conversation in a way that's very worrying. I think we should be asking these questions. Mm. But I also think we should kind of perhaps question the wisdom of this kind of pairing of both globalization 
and being more responsive to calls on the domestic level for more inclusion and diversity. Because those are not necessarily complementary things. And in, in fact, mm -hmm. in some ways, they're very contradictory. I mean, if you mm -hmm. think about it, if the academy wants to make this soft power play for global audiences or, or global industries, then you're going to have more films from other countries getting nominated for, let's say, Best Picture or Best inter International Picture, perhaps even more actors from other countries being nominated. That's going to make this already in incredibly crowded field that's full of controversy every year over who's nominated even more crowded. So it's like, okay, we want more, let's say, African-American actors nominated or African-American filmmakers. It's like, at the same time, we're going to broaden the number of filmmakers that we're going to, you know, be part of this uh, to everyone in the entire world. It's like, has anyone not considered that that kind of seems totally contradictory? Mm. You know, uh, it just right. seems bizarre to me that this kind of passes without... And again, I think there's a way to do this. But I think, like with other sorts of institutions, it's very difficult to globalize without risking losing touch with the local, with, with your local kind of audience, your, you know, local filmmakers, local industries. And as with other trends in globalization, it does seem to empower the already powerful, the already rich at the disservice of, of more independent, smaller scale uh, filmmakers and films. So I don't know, I, I see that as a potential issue that I don't really see being discussed. Yeah, it's it's not really being discussed. Um, and it kind of goes back to your earlier point. And I think that, you know, I mean, this is such a huge discussion. You're almost describing like, you know, models of society, you know, the, right. the wide society or the narrow society and which one is more effective. Right. And what happens when you get too large or things like this? It's it's almost like a societal question. Right. But I was also reminded maybe this isn't this is off point, but. Again, I do. I, I think the 1970s are like the peak of American cinema. And what was happening mm. then is a lot of directors were hiring cinematographers from other countries yeah. to give a different look to their movies. And so it felt like there already was a kind of internationalization going on in terms of content because, you know, the, the film needed that that eye. It needed a different view. It needed a, a different perspective. Right. But what's happening now is is my concern that everything seems to be litigated. And mm. again, it's almost like a, a the politics has become a politics of like a U.S. Congress mile, you know, a style <laughs> of, you know, kind of litigating yeah. what is the law that's going to be passed. But I think we've all become very hyper- politicized and so it's just touching everything right now so yeah i don't i don't know it's it, it's a problem well i just want to add one more point there sure. just on on top of what you said there is a long history of hollywood in fact the the majority of hollywood's history has been one of kind of international collaboration mm -hmm. i mean if you go back to the silent film era if you go back to like all the the german emigres who came to hollywood mm -hmm. yeah you know like people sure. like fritz lang uh if you look at all the English and Irish actors who work in big Hollywood mm -hmm. movies. There's there's an incredibly rich history of international collaboration that I think mm -hmm. Hollywood has done very well. And I certainly would not like to see go away at all. I, I think, 
that elements of this internationalization, uh, in a way, it's kind of redundant because it was already happening. Mm-hmm. And my fear is that it's it's being done more on kind of a corporate level than on, exactly. on an artistic level. Yeah. yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. So you mentioned Hollywood's quota thing that it's trying to implement. What is exactly the the quota system that's about to be implemented? Uh, to the best of my mind, you have to either make a movie about a story that features a story about an underrepresented group or issue, feature someone from an underrepresented group in front of the camera, or have enough people kind of on the crew mm-hmm. and on the production team. In order to get nominated. Yeah, for best picture, nominated. in order to be yeah. eligible. And it's... Um, yeah, eligible. The way yeah. Hollywood is today... I mean, I was reading a Times article on this the other day. Um, you know, uh, apparently, like, for example, The Irishman, 1917, like, they would still be eligible because of the people they had behind the camera. Mm-hmm. So it does seem somewhat flexible. But, yeah, it's definitely worth discussing, I think, in terms of, you know, some of the issues we've talked about. So... We've now got these 10 Best Picture nominations. So there's this huge, there's this much larger swath of, of movies that are being nominated for Best Picture. I'm, I'm wondering if Best Picture is an outdated concept, just because I'm never, I know it's supposed to reflect Hollywood, but it's also to be international. You know, I like, do films like Top Gun, Avatar, Elvis, do these belong in the same arena of award of awarding a film like Banshees, Tar, and Women Talking. I guess it's been this right. way already, and it and the idea is that the nomination itself is a representation of the diversity of the types of films being made. But it does seem like they're on different metrics. Absolutely, maybe one of sales and popularity, and the other a metric of art and narrative. You know, it made me just looking at this list. I guess if we want to now jump into our discussion of the of the films, it seems like you could almost take them in two halves. So you've got your spectacle films like Top Gun, Avatar, All Quiet on the Western Front, Elvis, Everything Everywhere All at Once, and then you've got the drama slash art film like Women Talking, Banshees, uh, Triangle Sadness, Tar, and The Fablemans. Does that seem fair of a, of a division to you? I know you can't quite divide those as cleanly as I've done that. What do you think of that? Yeah, that's that's useful because I, I think in the past, you know, especially in the 90s when, when the Oscar kind of viewership reached its peak, you had this kind of Oscar movie. You know, there was right. this thing called an Oscar movie where it was something like Titanic would be a good example where it's... It has spectacle, it has this scale, but it is designed for kind of an adult audience. And right. it may touch upon important historical issues, important social issues, but in a way that is family-friendly, somewhat risk-averse, if not very risk-averse, and was able to kind of be a representation of Hollywood's sort of statement about this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And that kind of movie is in the process of disappearing, basically. Mm-hmm. Like, they're still being made, but they're no longer being recognized by the Academy, and there's no longer as big of an audience for these films. Mm-hmm. And so, as a result, we're seeing what used to be contained in sort of one category, this sort of, like, Oscar movie, uh, bifurcating. 
into these different streams. You know, I, I think it's useful to kind of signify them as, as spectacle films and kind of more drama art house films. Mm -hmm. And even within the spectacle films, you have like Top Gun, which for me, I really liked simply because it is part of a tradition of sort of dumb American movies that's never trying to be anything but that, you know, like it's not making a social statement, which I found refreshing, actually. And it's delivering a level of spectacle that I think is genuinely amazing, mm -hmm. you know, despite all the kind of, uh, you know, bad politics behind it in terms of the geopolitics and all that sort of stuff. It delivers on that front. Avatar, I think, does that too, though it is pushing more of a social social sort of message about, you know, environmentalism and stuff like that. Uh, All Quiet is a little bit more like that old, old school sort of Oscar picture, you know. It yeah, that is, kind of straddles in between, doesn't it? Yeah. It does. Yeah. And Elvis... Yeah, I don't think it deserves to be on this list. Like, there's just, I, I, <laughs> why don't I'm we, just blown away. Yeah, why don't we go through them one by one and and um, we can kind of discuss them. What do you what do you think of that? That sounds good. And the ladies and gentlemen, you have reached the end of part one. Jim and I ended up having a very long and very interesting conversation. We thought it would be better to divide it up into two parts. First part, we've kind of covered the Academy, kind of where it stands in the year 2023. In the next part, we're going to get into specific nominations, especially the Best Picture nominations. We're going to give kind of detailed summaries about our thoughts of each of the nominees. We're also going to go through some other categories we thought were interesting and end off by talking about what we thought were the best films of 2022 and a few concluding thoughts as well. So... Part two will be dropping soon. It will come out before the Oscar ceremony airs. But for now, enjoy part one, and we'll see you soon.